friends, there has been one question rattling around my head since I was lucky enough to sit down and talk with Lisa for the first time, and that was simply, do we want to make America great again, or do we want to make America well for the first time? And these, these topics are often difficult and challenging to discuss, but we are going to dive in with Lisa and her book, The Very Good Gospel, to discuss issues of race and poverty and gender and class and, and history and more, and, and also her writings from the Christian perspective and a calling for more wholeness and shalom in this life through these topics, not around them. I learned so much, and needless to say, there's much we can all learn from conversations like these, so I hope you find this episode as engaging as I did. Friends, I am so excited to introduce you to Lisa Sharon Harper today, and we are going to go through her book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. Thank you so, so much, Thad. It's really great to be here. And yeah. just to start us off, can you just share a little snippet about who you are, what do you do, and what actually led you to writing this book? Well, sure. I am Lisa Sharon Harper, <laughs> and I, I'm the founder and um, president, ooh, that feels so weird to say, but it's true, <laughs> of Freedom Road, LLC. We are a consulting group that exists in order to help groups to do justice more justly. And so we work with denominations and organizations and government and business, pretty much anybody who wants to work with us, um, on pretty high-level projects. But we do that. We, we, our main strategy is to help to reconcile the narratives that, um, that we all live with. We all, we all understand the world through stories. We all craft a story to explain the universe, just like, just like they did in ancient times. Though, you know, our stories today might, you know, include a 7-Eleven as opposed to, you know, the fire and the water, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So what we do, though, is we craft stories to understand our world. And I believe that there, and we believe at Freedom Road, that there are several um, prime narratives, like key narratives that kind of run through America right now. And they, you, you can tell that they exist because the way we vote about how the world should be. When we vote, we're casting a vote for how the world should be. We're saying we believe the world should be ordered this way in order to get the future that we want. We get, we, the future that we want is formulated in our minds according to how we believe we got here and who we are. So if you have two very different stories of how we got here, then you have two very different understandings of who we are and what it will take to become great, what it will take to be well. So, and one story, one major narrative in the United States, we were good at one point, and now we have to get back to that. So that's where that Make America Great Again slogan comes from. It comes from a narrative that says that, and usually they point to the 1950s or even 30s or 20s as the time when everything was great. Um, little aside, I was, I, I am one of the, well, I was definitely the first non-nun to go with Sister Simone Campbell on her Nuns on the Bus tour um, back in 2016, July 2016. And I was there with her for, uh, I think, a week. And we were at the Republican convention, just handing out lemonade on the street, doing surveys of people who were going in. 
And one of the questions on the survey was, and we asked everybody this, if you were to point to a time that is your dream time that you want things to go back to, what, what would that time be? Well, the one that was pointed to the most was the pre-New Deal era. So basically the 1920s, before we had Social Security, before we had a, a, a safety net that we can catch poor people within. They wanted that era. Well, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of my narrative as a black woman who has all other kinds of descent in her as well. My, some of my ancestors came to America from Puerto Rico and from the Caribbean and, and, and others from, from other places. And so I'm thinking about it from that perspective. Um, I don't want to go back to the 1920s. <laughs> the 1920s were literally the time where there were the most race riots in the nation. And it was happening at the very same places these people were like, oh, that was the best time, right? Well, <laughs> we have very different perspectives on that, right? Well, so, great for whom? Great for whom? And also, if your narrative has erased that underside, then you would genuinely and, and uh, you know, rightfully think, well, these were great times. Why wouldn't anybody want to go back there? Like a false nostalgia. Uh, uh, yes, a nostalgia that's built on a false narrative. Yeah. So what we do is we reconcile the narratives. We bring people together in common space to begin to share their stories so we can begin to get a common understanding of what happened so that we can then have be build common commitments in public space that brings about a more just world. Mm. Yeah, so that's what we do. We do it through consulting, training, coaching, um, and then also actually through pilgrimage. And pilgrimage is really the most powerful thing you can possibly do uh, because it's the immersion in the other person's story. And the walking mm. in that story, usually our pilgrimages last for a week. And we're asking the question of, you know, for us, particularly as evangelicals, as people who follow Jesus, we are always asking on these pilgrimages through others' stories, what is the good news here? The good news is not good news if it's not good news for the least of these, for the ones who were oppressed. So you can't reconcile the narrative if you're not willing if you're not willing to uproot your own understanding of what the good news is to you and not ask the legitimate question, what would the good news be to those who live on the underside of the systems that were created to make you comfortable? Mm. Right? So anyway, so that's what we do. <laughs> and uh, we have several ways people can do pilgrimages. They're, you can take, get, take them for course credit at Greenville University, or we can, Freedom Road will work with you in order to craft your own pilgrimage for your own community. Um, and then the last way is actually, we have, a, we have our own pilgrimage that we do once a year called the Ruby Woo Pilgrimage. And it's, it's, it's a journey through the intersectional um, struggle for women's equality in the U.S. You have my mind going 100 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm, and, and, yeah. and you know, it's firing into that statement when you said um, to make it comfortable for you, right? And and yeah, and this this narrative that we don't talk about, it's the cobalt mines in Southern Africa, you know, that are mined by children who are slaves yeah. to then go to China 
to then be put together by women and children who are often, and even fathers who are slaves yeah. in, in, in a lot of respects. Also, mm -hmm. that way it can come over here and I can buy a watch for $20 that's going to last a year and throw it away and get a new one. Wow. Right? And, and it comes wow. down to the chocolate that we eat mm -hmm. and, and the oh, yeah. food that we eat and the clothes that we buy. And it's yeah. when I look at something, I go, I'm getting a good deal. It's usually because somebody else and then also their environment is That's paying right. for it in their community. So consider this. Think about this. When you think about, um, I, I was, well, let me put this. I was, um, I, I spoke at a conference that was basically a conference of tea partiers, which was really, I was like the only, there were only two people who were at this conference that were maybe three who back in 2003, 12 were not identified as like um, conservative even but this was genuinely like like it was I felt to me like a tea party convention <laughs> and I was tasked with uh, speaking on God's kind of governance and um, one of the things that I said during that talk was that imagine that you are a nation that among all the other nations, you know, your nation has had 254 years of free labor and stolen land. So you have among the largest, not the largest, but among the largest swaths of land and territory with the most diverse topography in the world. And you also have had 250 years of free labor from at least 400,000 people who came and then grew to 4 million, right? So you get all that free labor and all that free land. Would you not be the strongest economy on earth? Well, you would <laughs> because you've gotten all that free labor and free land. So I, I know what it was is that I was saying that in response to the, the co-author of my book, Left, Right, and Christ, who said, it was so interesting how he said this too, he is a tea partier and he said there's only two ways to get money or to to, to build economy and one of them is through pro productivity and the other one is through pillaging and and then he said we have been the productive nation we have we have we have produced and so therefore we are rich we are the richest nation in the world which we're actually not the richest nation we're just the largest economy but so when I came back to him and I said, well, I'm sorry, but my response to you when you say that is, my very first thought is, well, where does my ancestors who were enslaved in South Carolina and Kentucky and Virginia and Alabama, where do they fit into this productivity piece? Because what you've done by saying that is you've erased them from your narrative. That's what you've done. You've erased them from your narrative. I think that we have to ask the question, is our wealth because of high productivity in that narrative, or is our wealth the product of pillaging? Mm. And if it is the product of pillaging, then as followers of Jesus, there are implications for that. Perhaps that might even be the reason why Jesus, when approached by the rich young ruler, looked him in the eye 
the rich young ruler. He's rich, so obviously he's profited a lot off of something. He's young. Okay, whatever, he's young. But he's a ruler. In other words, he's somebody who has authority and power in colonized space. So most likely, he comes from the colonizing class or those who are, are making, making their way by building up, basically by, by supporting the colonizing class. In other words, supporting the Romans. So for him to give up his power, which is what Jesus said, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. He didn't say, you know, um, think about it. <laughs> he didn't say, read this book I have. It's really, you'll, you'll love it. It'll be very interesting. And when he could not say yes, Jesus didn't say, no, 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 that's okay. I was just came with you. You can come around every Saturday, right? He didn't, he didn't say that. He let him go away. Sad. Because he could not give it up. He could not give up the power that was pillaged. So, you know, people talk about privilege. And I mean, I love, I love the fact that we're recognizing that privilege exists. But there's another whole way of justifying that privilege, which is to not question it, to find ways not to question it, to find ways to, quote, leverage it right? Which is, okay, that's a good start. We can leverage pilgrimage or le leverage um, uh, privilege. But ultimately, that privilege comes because someone was pillaged. So the real question we have to ask if things will be made well with us, if we will make America well for the first time, is what would Jesus do? It's really that simple. It's not rocket science. The rocket science is in the doing. It's in how do we manage what rises up in our spirit and our soul when that question is even posed to us because there's all these things that rise up in order to protect what we have, in order to protect, to protect the comfort that we have, right? And it's not mm -hmm. to say that everybody, um, everybody is equally victimized or equally oppressor or whatever. It's not about that. It's just to say that we will not be well. We will not be well until what has been broken is repaired. And not whole if you're not whole. Yeah, exactly. That's the basic premise of shalom, mm -hmm. that there's no such thing as God's kind of peace that exists among some and not among all, because God created the world to exist within an intricate web of relationships that are interdependent upon each other. And when the web is broken, one thing is not just affected, the whole web comes apart. So we are literally dependent on each other. I use the example, um, I, I, I talk in the new book um, a lot about the, inter the interconnectedness of society, but mm -hmm. actually from my first degree in natural resource management, how you study complex ecosystems, and, and, and it was this narrative of how the wolves changed Yellowstone, right? And, mm. 
and I won't go into all the detail, but but the gist mm. was it's, you know, as the wolves were introduced, then the, the coyote populations and things were put back under control, which, you know, which then also, you know, the rabbits and everything, and all these things started coming back and thrive, which then allowed mm. the trees to come back, which then allowed the songbirds to come back, wow. and then, and then with wow. all that kept in check, you know, because, yeah. all because, well, if the wolves are eating the deer who are eating all of, the you know the foliage mm -hmm. well then you had these erosions in the banks and the rivers oh, and it wow. changed the entire landscape but by yeah. keeping you know these checks and repairing it and all that in this balance of what brought mm -hmm. back the ecosystem mm -hmm. of how introducing the wolves mm -hmm. literally changed the rivers that's amazing that's amazing and we don't think about that yeah and and and, and so when indigenous I at, people do though right yeah yeah because they have a relationship with the land they are closer mm -hmm. to the land they're not disconnected from the land um, really funny story, when I was living in New York City and I was working on environmental justice, which is different than environmentalism because environmentalism exists to protect trees. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a very simplistic way of thinking of it, but environmental justice exists to protect people, usually people of color, poor people, from toxins being dumped into their environment, yeah. right? Which ultimately does have something to do with trees because um, usually there's no green space in those communities. But I was talking with, um, with, a, with a mother once who was kind of laughing at the fact that her son in, I think, kindergarten um, was having a conversation with all the other kids in kindergarten, maybe it was first grade, and they were asking, you know, where do blueberries come from? And her son knows because they had just gone blueberry picking. And he said, they come from bushes. And the kids in his class were like, no, they come from the supermarket. They come from the supermarket. <laughs> So there's like talk about disconnect, right? Like yes. there's no sense of where our, even our food comes from. But that's not like indigenous people have that connection because at least they had it, um, but they tend to have it still. Those who are not disconnected and in urban centers and disconnected from their people. But that's part of the sin of domination is that what domination does is disconnects us from the other and us from the land. Mm. So... The, I believe one of the goals of um, f for our healing, not just I believe, I think it's, it's an absolute call of shalom, is to be reconnected to land and people and place and story, the stories that happened on land between people. And, and I would almost say when I, you know, when I think about the Yellowstone narrative, I'm trying to wonder what are our wolves, right? Mm -hmm. what what are those mm -hmm. those issues that we need to address and and I think that's one of the important ones is our disconnect from our interconnectedness with with the land itself allows mm -hmm. us to destroy it without thinking about it it's really true if we're even willing to do that does that not reflect a greater narrative of how we're if we can't love the land that sustains us well how do we love ourselves well? How am I ever going to love somebody else well? Especially if that somebody is somebody that I perceive as different than me mm -hmm. or less than me or mm -hmm. whatever than me, right? Mm -hmm. And that disconnect is painful. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, it is. I mean, I think, I think back to, I'm always asking what's the roots of the things? Mm -hmm. Where do these things come from, right? Like, how did this happen? The world we're in right now. Well, when you trace it back, 
Um, I'm writing my next book right now too, actually, and it's it's tracing my family's story. Mm. And my family, at least as much as I know today, my family's story begins in the United States. Of course, it goes back way beyond the United States, but in the United States, we believe it believe it, it begins around 18 sorry 1682 in Maryland, in the colony of Maryland, and which is about 50 years after Maryland was actually created as a colony, right? So. Um, Jamestown was uh, was about 75 years before that, and um, and so you had these two colonies rising up together, Virginia and Maryland, Maryland mirroring Virginia almost in everything. They tried to do almost everything like that, um, and but these people, as I'm learning the stories, they didn't just come to come; they came with stories. They came running from stuff. Yes, running from poverty running from domination. Mm. So literally my and my um, ancestry, we are we know we have DNA connection and so that's what leads us to believe or one of the things that leads us to believe that we are also connected in with this family. Um, and one half of which comes from Northern Ireland, the Ulster community in Ireland, right? So um, near Belfast. And so and what, what was going on then? They were Scotch Irish and they were settlers in Northern Ireland land that because England had taken over the Ulster region and was settling it, colonizing it. And of course the Northern Irish rose up and said, hell no, we won't go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're like, we're not doing this. And so, so they, they fought, they fought for like a hundred years. They're actually still fighting to this day. They're still fighting at least to different degrees, but that's what the IRA, the IRA literally comes from that lineage of struggle and that started around the year 1600. <laughs> Kid you not. So like with King James the first, the guy who, who literally, the King James Bible, yeah, that guy, right? So, and before him it was Queen Mary and the Scots and then it was, um, it was uh, or Queen Mary the first rather, and Elizabeth the first, right? So it's, this is an old, old battle and here you have this moment, I think 1642, when the Ulster, um, the Ulster Scots were now massacred by the Northern Irish because they were trying to take over their land. And there was a king that came in, I believe King Charles, that came in and, um, and started sending more and more Scots to Ireland in order to settle the land. And so you had hundreds of people who, who died, who were locked in homes and burned burned alive in their homes um, and like 12,000 people lost their homes in the midst of this Ulster uprising. It was out of that that you got the first waves of the Scotch-Irish that came to Maryland in 1683. So you know what I mean? So and they came as indentured servants but they came wounded. They came wounded. But when I look at my family, I look at those, those Scotch-Irish people. Yes, yes, and not, they were not my family. They were in my family line. But those Scotch-Irish people who came as, as persecuted people, who were persecuted because they were colonizing somebody else's land, mind you, in America, they became huge slaveholders down in the South. They eventually moved down to Alabama and they become the McGee's and McKees and Muggies 
whenever you see an iteration of McGee, basically M-C-G-E-E -E or M-C-K-E-E -E or M-C-K-E-Y or, or M-C-G-H-I-E, that is that family. Wow. That is where they came from. They came from that family line. And so, like, I, I, I trace that and I go, but you know, now they wouldn't even know that. They would think we're white. Or they think we're Scotch-Irish and they don't know their story. Mm. So they continue the, pot the pattern of domination because ultimately, ultimately they were settled in Ireland trying to escape something in Scotland. What was going on in Scotland that made them think they could, they wanted, you know what I mean? Like, what's going on? Traveling ocean back then. Yeah, 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 and and mm. I mean serious like serious persecution by the English, as well, right? So. So there's. There's generations, of hidden pain, and brokenness, that has become normalized in our thinking, that now we approach the other, with the assumptions of less than with the assumptions mm -hmm. of um well with i should just say with assumptions that come from places we don't even know how to name yes we can't even name so my goal in life like one of my goals in life is actually to help people of european descent to really trace their families so that they can begin to know their stories for a couple of reasons one so they will understand that they are not white you are not white. You're not. You're not white. Whiteness does not exist in DNA. Whiteness is a racial category, not an ethnic category. And whiteness in America was created to consolidate European power, to make mm -hmm. it a majority, so that there would be political um, hegemony here of European of European power, I should say, you know, political um, domination and, uh, and and favor. And there was a question all the way through the 1900s. There were questions about who can be white. Well, you know, the Armenians literally had to fight their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Like the Irish too, right? To the Irish, the Irish wasn't even Supreme Court. The Irish were not considered white in America until they went and fought in World War II. It was after dying in World War II that they were finally given the privileges of whiteness through the GI Bill. So the GI Bill set Irish people up to actually begin to have a standing, have something to stand on. And then, of course, Kennedy, when he becomes president, well, now they, are, they can be white. Right now they're white. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's... There, there's an interesting, you can even see stuff like this online if you go to certain websites. There's, there's a really interesting gradation of who has been able to become white in America and who has not. Mm. And why does anybody want to be white? Yeah. Why, what, what, why, what's the allure? <laughs> well, the allure is legal. In the legal constructs that we set up in the very beginning, in, our, in this nation, we said the only people in 1790, the Immigration Act of 1790, we said the only people who will be able to become naturalized citizens were white men. 
That's it. So why does that matter? Because a naturalized citizen, especially at the beginning of a country, is the only way people are really going to be, be here. And so it's the, the, what we're declaring then is that they are the only ones who are called by God to exercise dominion on this land as white men. So of course everybody wants to become white. But you see what happened in the midst of that transaction is that throughout the 19th century when, when European immigrants are coming in, they are having to choose. You're coming to America for the American dream or to escape some horror in your own nation. But in order for you to be able to exercise any level of dominion on this land, you will have to be white. So to be white, you have to give up your actual connection to land and people, your ethnicity. So they did. And when you do that, you gut yourself. You gut yourself of true identity and you take on false identity. And with that false identity, we get, let's make America great again. Where we are today. Yeah, you get people fighting to maintain white power. It's finally being spoken now. Literally, after nearly uh, you know, uh, 50 years of not being spoken, but still being acted on, but never being spoken in, uh, explicitly until now again, where they are fighting because of the fear of losing it because the demo, demo, um, demographics are changing. Um, they project that by the year 2045 or 2035, depending on who you read, we're going to have a majority people of color nation. And so people are scared. Mm -hmm. And if, in fact, a recent survey, a recent poll showed that the people who are most scared of that, in fact, the people, the only people in the nation, according to this 30,000 person poll was white evangelicals, which is really interesting, are the most, well actually they are the ones, the only ones who the majority said will be worse off when that happens. So if, if you really believe we're gonna be worse off as a nation when people of color are the majority and actually have the capacity to lead this nation, then underneath that, is a belief that this nation was really for the sh white people. White people should be ruling it. And if you believe that white people should be ruling, then, then really you have to fight to the death. You have to fight to the death to maintain the superiority of whiteness, the supremacy of whiteness, because if whiteness is ever dethroned, then your identity has been stripped from you. Your very sense of who you are, your value as a human being has been stripped from you because you've already gutted yourself of true identity. Hmm. And now all you have is the whiteness, the power, the assumption of power. Whiteness is who I am. Exactly, but it's not. I want to get to this is, you, you have this beautiful formula in the book where you, you talk about 
this idea of shalom, right? Mm -hmm. We're getting to in the piece, and 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 to be respectful for for folks who who might not be of the Christian faith. This this is still written from a biblical mindset. Oh yeah. But um, this 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 idea of shalom, but you you break it down into these categories of self and gender and creation, and broken families and race and all these ideas. But mm -hmm. you still, while they are all separate, they are all the same. Yeah, well, what it is is they are all different layers of who we are. Mm. They, they represent different realms within we live and breathe and have our being. Um, we live within the self. We live within families. We live within a governing body. We live, um, we live in relationship to all of these things. We live within cross-gender relationships. We live within relationship with other nations. We live within relationship to creation. And so the question is, is um, well, the, the work is to recognize the reality of my relationship with each of these other parts of creation. And then of course, God, who is not a part of creation, but creator, creator self. So I live in relationship to all of these and the work of the book was to really do a deep dive into what does it mean to have our relationships be well within what was the intended relationship within each of these realms how has that those relationships how have those relationships been broken and what does it look like to pursue the redemption and restoration and healing of those broken relationships yes because it's bringing me back to you were you were talking about the two things needed for the relationship um trust and choice yeah right because yeah. in, in the beginning of the book you just open it uh, right up and 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 you, you you challenge this this idea of faith this specifically within the church is how can they believe the gospel and do this yeah. and and that that to me kind of connects down serious well because there's things missing from it right that mm -hmm. i think you bring us into um mm -hmm. You said, if one's gospel falls mute when facing people who need the good news the most, the impoverished, the, the oppressed, and the broken, then it's no gospel at all. Yeah, that's right. Wow. You know what's really funny is I think that the hardest chapter for me to write, the one that was the, la the last chapter that I wrote, um, was actually um, the reconciliation with God, shalom with God. Yeah. That was the hardest one. And, and actually the family chapter was probably second hardest because for me the family chapter represents really the, that, that place in my own soul that is the place that drives me to God. Yeah. I mean, really, truly, even just two nights ago. I mean, literally could not get to sleep because I was just racked by the brokenness of my own family. Not racked, but rather just so deeply disturbed and, and led me to prayer. Just led me, so the place that drives me to Jesus for me is my family. So that, that was a hard chapter to write. And then also the Shalom with God. Why Shalom with God? The Shalom with God, because I, since I walked down that aisle in, in August 21st, 1983, at the Sunday evening camp church meeting um, in Cape May, New Jersey, and, and gave my life to Jesus, I really have been different. I mean, I, I actually experienced, I really did experience like a night and day experience. And I have always moving forward in 
my healing and growth and development and getting closer to God and closer to Jesus. So it was really painful to look back mm -hmm. and not just look back because what you just said is really true. When you write, you can't write from a distance. You have to go back in. And so I didn't, oh, <laughs> if I'm thinking Hitler right now, I didn't, I, I, I had forgotten, I had forgotten um, how lost I was and how much in pain I was and how afraid, how scared of everything I really was. I was. Um, and a lot of that came from the fact that my parents had divorced. It came from the fact that I had been sexually abused as a very young child. And, you know, and so I had, I did not have a sense of boundaries or safety of self. Um, so everything was a threat, you know, when you don't have, when you don't have a clear sense of self and the, the capacity and ability to maintain your own self because that's been violated, then you are perpetually vulnerable, right? So, and then perpetually become a victim actually can become, and I had, I had become like the class punching bag and. 15, fifth grade, and then again in seventh grade or eighth grade, you know, so it was like really, it was a very traumatic time and then found Jesus and in the midst of that also found community with my youth group and a sense of safety and love and welcome. Like I really had not ever experienced, I had not really ever experienced that before. Certainly with my mom I had and certainly in my immediate family but there was also in my family a very sense, a very real sense of not being safe, you know. So, yeah. So that family section was really hard for that reason, and the shalom with God section was hard because it was hard to, it was hard to um, go back in and have communion again with with little Lisa, you know, pre-Jesus Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. But I did. And I mean, I wept. It really that led me to lots of tears. Um, but also, I think some revelation, too, right? Like, you begin to see, my God, I've come so far. Wow. Like, the power of Jesus to heal is real. I really have experienced that. It's like a glory. Well, and, and one of the first chapters that you actually go into is the shalom with yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and when, when I lead retreats off, when I work with people, I talk about it going to, to sit with your wounded child, yeah. right? The six-year-old, the four-year-old, the 10-year-old version of you that, is the, that was carrying that pain mm -hmm. that's been with you. And I think it was really beautiful how you, how you actually give us space to go there and face you know, some of the hard statistics. I think you've got one in here that... Um, I, I, I love that you were quoting uh, Bradshaw. Mm -hmm. Is it? Um, as far as the brain is concerned, physical pain and intense experiences of social rejection hurt in the same way. Yeah. And that's hard to read when, when we live in a society that compares people's pain and, and puts it in different categories and, and that levels the playing field, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, let me just say, it's, yeah. you, you understand then that it's not about hierarchies of pain, it's about the reality of the presence of pain. Mm -hmm. And pain is pain. 
and so it needs to be healed. Yes. And so we really do all need Jesus the doctor. We really do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, creation. I love this, this, this question that you put out here when, when our group was actually talking the other day about the biblical threshold of, of the suffering. Um, you asked this question of how do we get to a place where our neighbors have to eat dirt to survive? And that is coming from a quote that you're, well, not a quote, but you're referencing Haiti. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Haiti is not the other side of the world. No. Haiti is across our the next pond neighbor. from us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that then brings in this other narrative of, of all the other sorts of pain and injustices going on, and, and it's here. Mm-hmm. It's closer than we think, but we love to draw with a very fine razor who's in and who's out, who's in our backyard, because yeah. then we can say, Who not are my backyard. For? Yeah. Am, I, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, uh, you bring that challenge, and I love it when you read, yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. We are literally, that's the answer of scripture that Joseph answers for us. We are our brother's keeper. Um, and so now what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and, I, and I know we won't have time to, to talk about it today, but for those who get a chance to read your book, one of the beautiful uh, and very difficult truths that you bring to light in this book is with all the hot topics of everybody talking about immigration today, say, well, wait, why are people trying to come here and tracing back? And you even went to things I studied in school, which were, you, you know, the North American Free Treaty and, yes. and, and the corn and how we yeah. subsidize our corn. And yeah. that was the staple in the Mexican economy. And then we then they lost all of their jobs. And now we grow it with machines and, and they have no work. And, and, and exactly you, right. you start to understand where these issues come from and it really starts to take away some of your judgments about them. Yeah. And I would love to encourage people to dive mm-hmm. into that chapter more. And it was just so beautifully and easily able to digest, to understand it, mm-hmm. which I love that in your writing. It wasn't academic or complicated to say, oh, wow even just like with the gender of the self-conversation, there might be more to this than I know. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for reading <laughs> the book, first of all. <laughs> Seriously. And then also, you know, for, um, well, for sharing it. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, one more thing that I just wanted to, to, to kind of write us up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to the life and death part, which is actually where I wanted to end, just, just really quickly, um, you talked a lot about witnessing peace, and this was actually very moving to me. Mm-hmm. Um, charity versus justice. Oh, yeah. So charity oh. offers a handout or a hand up to individuals caught in poverty's web. Justice examines the web and tears it down. Yeah. Yeah. That was exactly. powerful. Um, charity looks at the um, at, a, at an impoverished person, a poor person, and says, oh, you know, what can I do to help that poor person? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give of myself in a very benevolent way in order to help them, right? But justice looks at that same situation and asks, 
how should things be? Mm. How should things be for this person? In other words, the assumption is that things are not as they should be, right? Charity looks at that person and thinks that person is not as they should be. Like that maybe they should work yeah. harder. Maybe they had a hard time and they just need a hand up. Da, 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 da. But it doesn't question the system. It doesn't question the way things work. Justice asks, what is wrong in the way things work that we have a situation like this in the first place? And, you know, yes, if you have one poor person or 10 poor people, but if you have, as actually Walter um, Brueggemann, not Brueggemann, Walter Rauschenbusch said back at the turn of the 20th century, when he wrote Christianity and the Christian and the and the, and the social crisis, Christianity and the social crisis, um, and and this actually ended up being the lightning rod that actually caused the split in the church between the what was then called the modernist movement we would now call liberals and the fundamentalists. Um, he simply said, if you have a situation where millions of people are kind of marching in lockstep down well-defined grooves toward common ends, then you know that it's not just an individual character flaw with them. There's something in the way things work, in the systems, the structures that are guiding them that are causing this um, millions to fall into poverty. And that, our scripture has something to say to that, about that. So we are neglecting God, Jesus, the scripture, the kingdom of God, if we are silent in those times. So, the, so justice demands that we ask how things, how should things be, and then work toward that. Hmm. Yeah, it's not enough. Charity is great for the moment if it's one person, maybe even five, or if it's, even, if it's a million people and that you're going to give a piece of bread to for a day, that's great for that day. But they're going to have the exact same issue tomorrow, maybe even worse, because we haven't dealt with what got these million people to be in a situation in the first place. Uh, I cut myself off right there. <laughs> no problem. I know, me too. It's, like, I, it's discipline because like, I could keep going. Oh, my gosh, because yeah. <laughs> I, I literally write about exactly what you're saying. I'm like, I feel like I should just be quoting you in the oh. new book. It was just like <laughs> when I'm talking about giving a $20 is great, and if the kid needs a coat and all that, but that, that if that's where you need to start, that's fine. But we that doesn't end it there. We need to, no, you know. Yeah. And if, honestly, here, let me say this. If you do end it there, if all you're doing is charity, then what you're actually doing is you are, you are, you are pouring into and helping to keep maintained yes. the system that is causing the need for the coats in the first place. Yes. Because you're not addressing the, the way cause. things should work. Yeah. You're not addressing the root cause. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're complicit. Yeah. And, and, and it's the, I have $20, I'm in control, I choose where to give it, and now I feel good, I've done my work, I can go back to my life. Yeah. And you're oh. disconnected. And not only that, not only are you disconnected, but actually even in that, which this raises this for me, there is an assumption that you should have your $20. That's mm. beneath that, it's underneath that. So, you know, I can't remember which, um, you know, saint it was, I'm not Catholic, but I remember I was listening to a talk by Vinod Ramachandra, who is a, a theologian, missiologist um, out of Sri Lanka, I believe. 
And, um, and he said once, which really blew me away, um, it was at a Veritas forum, he said, you know, this, this one saint, I believe it was Saint Athanasius, but I could be wrong. He said, that saint said, if I have bread and my neighbor has no bread, then I have stolen my neighbor's bread. Wow. We do not think that way. When Shane Claiborne came and spoke with the Mars group, he was referencing that because he said, if I have two coats, it means I have stolen one from somebody in need. Yeah, that's right. I remember just that, that, that rock that hits your stomach and you're just like, I own four coats. Right, wow. Right? The last thing I wanted to ask you about, your final chapter of Shalom brings us into life and death, which is a very hard conversation to have. Let me say, nobody ever wants to talk no about it. No one ever wants to talk about it. <laughs> but it, it yeah. Although it's actually one of my favorites because it was one of the most intense experiences mm. I've ever had. Both of the experiences that I talk about in, the, in that chapter with Richard Twist and also with my friend Erna. Um, Erna Hackett, well, a lot of people know her now, um, and she, when her, when her father passed away, I was not there for her. Um, I was, I was scared to death of death, and I just stayed away from it, and stayed away from, and I didn't ask questions. I wasn't there for her, and I had to come back to her and apologize later, and she forgave me, and it was, we were all fine, but it was only after I'd had the experience of being there, of choosing to be, to lean in, um, with, Richard Twist, um, my very good friend, and um, you know, a lot of people called him uncle. We didn't really, I didn't have that kind of uncle relationship with him, but it was more like a brother, actually. Mm. Um, he was like my older brother. And so, yeah, so after experiencing his death, and honestly learning from his family more about death as who are indigenous, and they they pulled, they really drew from their, their ways of, of moving into death. I learned about death from them, really, and, and how, how to understand it. And then looking at that in relationship to the scripture, to where Paul says, oh, death, where is thy sting? I think it's Paul that says that. Oh, where is your sting? I understood it for the first time, that where is the sting of death? If when we are actually living our lives as evidence of the presence of the kingdom mm. of God, if you kill me for that, you do the worst thing you possibly can. And the result will be that I get to go to God earlier. Where's the sting? I was thinking about this just recently because I, I was actually listening to my latest podcast, um, the Very Good very good Gospel, no, um, uh, Freedom Road podcast. And um, uh, the last one that we just put up called The Justice Agenda 2019. And Randy Woodley, interestingly, is actually speaking on it. And he's one of the four people that we're doing interviews with. And he says in one of the pieces, um, he says... You don't get killed for talking about justice. 
you get killed for doing justice. So I've really been thinking about that a lot recently. You know, when I, when I went down to Brazil this time, I actually was literally, um, it was the first time I almost canceled an event because I genuinely wasn't sure how secure it would be or how safe I would be as a black woman coming into Brazil two weeks after they just elected a white nationalist president who swore to execute his political enemies. And they just had an execution of a black woman activist pu pushing for justice last February. So I literally was thinking, oh my God, like I'm a target down there and I'm not sure how safe I'll be. Maybe I shouldn't go. And it really was a struggle. Same thing in, in, Char in Charlottesville. I literally had a moment where I almost did not go out on the street and march with the rest of the faith leaders who were already out there. They were lined up, they were courageous. I was not, I stayed back. I was, you know, I did not want to be that story of somebody having been found swinging from a tree later that night, which I absolutely thought absolutely could have happened. We were in a town with, um, I think some, uh, one person that I talked to said that there were at least 4,000 neo-Nazis and KKK members and others who were there, militia members who were there at the time. Um, I did not want to be that story, and I also didn't want my friends to be that story. Um, but when it came down to it, both in going to Brazil and in going to Charlottesville, or going out onto the street in Charlottesville, the, it was a call. It was a direct call from God, and it was a direct call that I interpreted as being from God. When I sat in the stillness, and you hear that still, small voice, in Charlottesville, the voice said, pick up your cross. Mm. It said, and actually, first it said, be present. Be present. And then it was very clear, even if that means marching to your cross. That's what be present meant. Be present, mm. even if that's what it means. And going to Brazil, the reality is, is that if you're not willing to go when they need you, you know, what is all this stuff you're talking about in terms of death and where is thy sting? No, you have to go. And not only do you have to go, but you have to go and you have to trust that God is there. God is going to be protecting you. And if it's your time to go, then it's your time to go. And at least it will be for, for the kingdom of God. So I would mourn for my death because of the pain it would cause my family. But I also know that for me, there is no sting. The last quote I will say is, um, I had to highlight it several times. You said, to ask forgiveness is to die a small death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Could you briefly explain that to me? Yeah. Well, I first heard that actually in, during peace training in Croatia. So it was the second pilgrimage I ever went on. Uh, the first one was stateside. We retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in America. 
in 2003. The following year, I took students, 25 students, and some staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship to Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia. And it was during our one-week training or weekend training in, um, on this island, sorry, this island called Pag, um, off the coast of Croatia, where one of our peace trainers actually said that. And it really stuck when she said, you know, forgiveness, asking forgiveness is to die a small death. Actually, it wasn't her. It was the other peace trainer who was a him. Um, he was in charge. He was the leader of Caritas Croatia at the time. So um, the Catholic move for peace in, in Croatia. And so, I mean, I've really come to understand that to be very true. So the struggle to exercise humility is a struggle of deference. It is the death of pride. Mm. It is the death of pride. <laughs> Ooh, you know what I mean? And, and that, for, for people who, especially for those of us in America, who are always struggling to be the best and striving and trying to get to the top and, you know, ooh, to ask forgiveness. It's also to place in some way, and depending on how big or how small the issue is, to place yourself in the hands of another. To say, because when you ask for forgiveness, they can choose not to give it. And they really can. And that, they, that's okay for them not to give it. But when you ask for that, you're actually placing power in their hands. So it's also a death of control. And if you're doing it on the scale that we need to do it in the United States, then you're talking about not just asking for forgiveness, but you're talking about doing what needs to be done to repair. So if we were, and I'll end with this, if we were really people of faith, then we would en engage these questions of the things that ro race and gender binaries and gender roles and, um, and gender domination is really what I mean. And, uh, and the domination of the environment and domination between nations and the domination within families. We would address those questions with the question of how do we repair? And again, if we were really people of faith, we would do it as they do in the scripture. The relationship broke there. The relationship could be restored if the nation were to recognize the break and look the people in the eye who had sinned against and say, what can we do for things to be made well with you, for you? And then do it. That is a small kind of death. Lisa, I'm very grateful. This Thank has you. been beautiful. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. Folks out there, obviously your book, very good gospel. You've yes. also written some other books. What's the mm -hmm. best way to look you up, follow you, get in touch with you? Oh, definitely the best way to look me up is, well, there are several. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, Lisa Sharon Harper on Facebook, um, both page and profile. Twitter, Lisa S. Harper, so at Lisa S. Harper, and also on Instagram, Lisa S. Harper. 
easy, but you can also go to my website, lisasharonharper.com or freedomroad.us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.